your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter, and we want to read verse 23. This, uh, <clears throat> just a simple little scripture, but has such, such great meaning. I want to express while you're turning my sincere appreciation, Brother Godair, Sister Godair and Lisa, Brother and Sister Davis, uh, Brother Lehman and Brother Bawai for coming and being with us. These, uh, these great men of God and the women that have been ministering to us in song, they have proven to be such a great blessing. The overall fellowship of the United Pentecostal Church uh, proves itself to be more value to me, valuable to me every, every day of my life. I appreciate the United Pentecostal Church. I may have made some statements this week about the Pentecostal movement that I hope that you do not misunderstand. We had a lady come to our church one time, and she called me back and said, Well, there's just a few things about your church I don't like, so I don't know if I'll be coming back. And I said, Well, what are they? And she said, Well, a couple of things you actually pointed out in your message. I said, Well, it appears maybe that you and I might agree on some of these things also. Uh, sometimes I am the biggest critic of our church. I feel that I need to be that way in the position of leadership at Calvary Gospel Church. But naturally, I'm in it to stay and I love it. And I feel that what has made the United Pentecostal Church what it is, is that we have not refused as ministers, for the most part, we have not refused to, to speak the things that we feel the Bible talks about and stresses. You're always right by stressing the things that God stresses. So 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter, verse 23, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. You may be seated. <clears throat> the word holiness is not found in this particular verse, neither is the word holy. But I would like to point out something that I think that is extremely important. When we define the word holy, as it is defined throughout the Scripture, we have an understanding that it means to be clean or to be pure. It also carries with it the connotation of sanctification or separation. Now, the doctrine of sanctification is a doctrine that's taught in the Bible very strongly. The two doctrines that seem to go hand in hand are the doctrines of justification and sanctification. And I could explain it in very simple terms to you. And I think that if you would search it out, you would find my explanation to be quite fitting in almost all of the scriptures of the Bible. Justification means that Christ died for us upon the cross and made us just as if we had never sinned. 
So justification, just as if we had never sinned. There is another doctrine that's taught very closely in relationship to it, and that's the doctrine of sanctification. Now, sanctification is explained in Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 1 and 2, I think as well as any other place in the Bible, yet the word sanctification is not found. Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Basically, what Paul is saying is that in sanctification, we actually surrender or we die. So, in justification, Christ died for us. In sanctification, we die for Him. So we die out to the desires of the flesh and to the lust of the flesh. And we have our own cross, except a man take up his cross daily and follow after God. He cannot be the disciple of the Lord. So, the word sanctification also comes into focus when we talk about not the word holy as much as the word holiness. Now, I'll just drop that there and we'll come back to it just in a, mo- a moment. Also, the word holy carries with it the connotation whole, W-H-O-L-E. And if you notice then, in 1 Thessalonians 5:23. He says, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit. Did you know when Jesus came, he came to make us whole? Now, when I found the Lord, I was a very sick man. I had a stomach ulcer. I weighed less than 120 pounds, if you have that great imagination. I was a very sick person. I felt I was near death. But I read in the scripture where he came to make me whole. And I assumed that meant body, soul, and spirit, which man is made up of. Now the body is the exterior or the uh, outside. It is the man that we see. There's a soul in the spirit that's inside. Somebody said, explain the inner man. The inner man's what's inside of the outer man. Pretty simple, isn't it? And I know that a lot of people go into this of soul and spirit, uh, being and such. Uh, it's not my intent today to do that. I will say I think that one of the most difficult parts of the Bible to explain is the inner man. See, Paul says in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, the word of the Lord is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing of sunder of soul and of spirit. Now, I may not be able, in every case, to draw that fine line between the soul and the spirit, but God's word can go right down between the soul and the spirit and do what needs to be done piercing even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit, and to the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Did you know God can read your mind? 
But did you know the Holy Spirit goes even further than that or deeper than that into man? God not can only read your mind, but He also can determine what makes you think the way you think. That's why the Bible says the intents of the heart. That's making reference to the things inside of you that make you feel and think the way you think. Now, you know, you're around personalities that uh, they always think a particular way. They always have a particular attitude. God can determine the attitude that causes you to think the way you think and act the way you act. This is the reason why that I want to stress today at the very beginning, while I will be talking about a lot of external values and the importance of it, that we cannot ever overlook the fact that the greatest work that's done in the Holy Spirit is not on you externally, but on you internally. That's important for you to understand that. Now let me just say this. You see, I've seen a lot of ladies that adhered to holiness standards. They had long hair. Long hair, according to the Scripture, and we'll get into it, is a sign of submission to authority. But yet these ladies are very bold and brash, and they tell people off, as far as I'm concerned, honey, you might as well shave your head. You missed the point altogether. You follow what I'm saying? See? But to us, see, the baptism of the Holy Ghost is that tinkling sensation that makes us run aisles and leap and jump for joy. But Jesus said in Matthew 20, except ye be baptized, Matthew 20 and 20, when the mother of the sons of Zebedee came and said, Grant that these my two sons may sit the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy kingdom. Jesus said, It's not for me to say. But he did say, Now you've asked a pretty hard thing. Except the man be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, and drink of the cup that I shall drink of, he cannot sit, the one on the right hand and on the left hand. Now, that simply says this, that when you receive the Holy Ghost, it's like taking a wife in marriage. When the preacher says it's for better or worse, you may think that it's going to be sweet all the way, but remember, when you took on that woman as your bride, you not only took what you didn't like, you took what you, or did like, you took what you didn't like also. And there are certain things about God that people like, and they extract the things they like, and they say, well, I'll take this. I'll take the running of the aisles and the jumping of the pews and the clapping of the hands. But remember, when you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you are complete in Him. You receive the fullness of God that simply means one thing. The things you don't like about God, you got as well as the things you do like. And so when we took on the Lord, we took on His compassion. We took on His love. We took on everything that He is. So the word whole is used in connection with holiness or with the word holy. When the Bible says you are complete in Him, it's talking about the wholeness of God. Basically, what I have found in my study of the Scripture, that the character of God is explained in Galatians 5.22, and that's the fruit of the Spirit. 
The authority of God is found or exemplified in the earth through apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, and teachers. The power of God is found in the gifts of the Spirit. So we have the gifts of the Spirit, the authority of the Spirit, and we have the fruit of the Spirit. Now, what is God? You may say, God is love. Well, now that's one aspect of God, but only one aspect of God. If I were to ask you who is God, you may say Jesus Christ. I agree with that. I also agree, however, that when the, when the psalmist of old said that he's exalted his word above his name, that there's a reason why that he said that. Now, the reason why I believe that he said that, you see, in mathematics, there is a law that states that no fraction of a whole can be greater than the whole. That simply means that anything's a part of can never be bigger than the totality of it. That's what Paul was trying to stress when he talked about spiritual gifts. Some of you, some of you folks talk in tongues and prophesy, he said. But you're just a member of the body of Christ. You're a part of. And some people get so big they think they're, they're, that they outgrow the body of Christ. You can't. As long as you are a body of, the Christ, of Christ, you've got to keep in mind one thing. It doesn't make any difference, my friend, how big you get. You are never bigger than the, the sum, the total of it. You're always a part of it. And if you saw a man that had an irregularity in his body to the point that he had to load his arm in a semi-trailer behind him, as long as it's connected to his body, the arm is not as big as the total. It's never as big as the total. So God has exalted His Word because the Word represents the totality of God, while the name represents a part of God. Now, I am not de-emphasizing that part. I am not de-emphasizing any part of God. I would be very foolish to stand here and say, well, this is not important. It's important. All of the fruits of the Spirit, those things are important. All the gifts of the Spirit, they are important. You know, the authority of Christ on the earth, that's an important thing. However, when I think of holiness as in, in the Bible and following the, the, the word itself throughout the Scripture and looking at the context in which the word holiness is found or the word holy as related to God, when you want to express the totality of God, summarize God. Now, if you want to break Him down in certain areas, and that's proper at times, you say God is love, so we're going to preach on love. You say God is long-suffering, so we're going to pre preach on long-suffering. God is gentle. Now, is He all of those things? He is all of those things. See? And, and, and there's a reason why that certain things are to be used, like Paul's tells the Colossian church, he said, let the peace of God reign in your heart. Now notice he didn't say let the God of peace reign in your heart. He said let the peace of God. In other words, he extracted a certain part of God and he said, now this is the part of God that should rule in your heart. Not the authority of God, not the long-suffering of God. But if you want proper balance, you take and let the peace of God rule in your heart because you've always got composure you're not bent out of shape. 
you always feel extremely uh, uh, secure in God when the peace of God rules in your heart? So he didn't say, let the God of peace rule in your heart. He said, let the peace of God rule in your heart. So there is a difference there. But when we want to summarize God, when we want to include everything there is, the word holy is used because it's the totality of God. Now the word holiness then is used many times in relationship to God, but many times it is used in the work of God or God's influence on you. So the holy God, the totality of God, working on the totality of man, the whole man, body, soul, and spirit. So as a result, we can stand in God and worship God in the beauty of holiness. Now that's not saying worship the beauty of holiness, but worship God in the beauty of holiness. Now I I trust that I'm making myself clear here this morning. I'm going to spend a lot of time in the foundation of this. If If we don't get into a lot of do's and don'ts, which I think I should cover some, but I want to be very careful because I understand that some of these things should be left up to the discretion of the local church and the pastor. But I also believe that there's an overall accepted standard that's found in the Bible that must be taught and practiced in the body as a whole. Now, 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, we find this scripture, having therefore uh, these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The opposite of holiness is uncleanness and division. That's the reason why that the Apostle Peter, in in his epistle, when he talks about uh, the people who are, are not holy, he talks about people who are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. He talks about people who are unclean and people who are vile. Now, that's the opposite of holiness. Now, I might also explain that when you read the first and the second epistle of Peter, actually it's a general epistle that was written to the church. Sometimes you, you see all of these things in, the, in, in second Peter especially, and you say, dear me. But did you know when he talks about the children of disobedience, he's not talking about people of the world. He's talking about people who claim to be Christians. And did you know that Satan does his greatest work in the planet Earth among the children of disobedience? And this is the reason why that there's such a horrible condemnation in the Scripture placed upon people who know and do not do, who become hypocritical. Because Satan does his greatest work among the children of disobedience. Now I want to take you to 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, verse 20. And we want to read this uh, scripture for you. And we want to move on then quickly from this. So, 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, verse 9. What? Question mark. Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God... And ye are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. 
Now, the concept of holiness comes into focus very, very clearly when we consider something that was taken or something that was experienced by the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts. So turn with me to the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. We see Peter as he is on a housetop at Joppa. We see this man as he is praying, he's in the Spirit. The Bible says in verse 9 of Acts 10, On the morrow as he went on a journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and a certain vessel descending unto him, as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice unto him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now notice the response of Peter. Now, before you judge Peter, and I've heard a lot of people judge Peter, they said, Oh, Peter, he fell back into this business of doubt. Remember now, one great doctrine of the Old Testament is now being considered by this man of God. Now, he is not about to change his mind. He's not about to change this doctrine unless he knows it's of God. He's got every reason in the world. He's got every reason in the world to question this. Now, please understand, I believe that. You see, there are many good angels and there are many bad angels. There are good visions and there are bad visions. When Satan was cast out of heaven, he took with him a third part of all the stars of heaven. It appears that that there were three archangels, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And each one had a specific calling or job in the kingdom of God. Now, in the book of Isaiah, the 14th chapter, the Bible tells us that Lucifer is called son of the morning. Now, the word morning there is taken from the same Hebrew word that's found over in the early chapters of the book of Genesis when it says the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, how long that first day was, I'm not for sure. But I know it consisted of a time of darkness and a time of light. The word morning there actually means light. Lucifer seemed to be the archangel that was responsible for bringing revelation or light in the kingdom of God. So, when he rebelled against God, Michael and the other archangels warred against or fought against Lucifer and those under his kingdom. And when he was cast out, that revelation or that light left him. For this reason, then, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan is now called darkness. And you will also find that Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. In other words, like a star that fell and just quickly dissipated or lost its glow or its light. It's gone. So that revelation left him. Now, he has a long memory of all of this. Little wonder now, my friend, that he's known in the Scripture as the father of all lies. So Paul said, even though an angel that come from heaven preaching any other gospel than the gospel that I preach unto you, let him be accursed. Because some people can see visions and even angels, but they're not all good. 
And they have to match the Scripture and the context of the Scripture. So here's this man on his knees, and he's praying. And a voice came to him and said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. What did he say? But Peter said, Not so, Lord. Now he mentions Lord because to him this was divine. But wait just a minute. What's going on here, Lord? He said, Don't ask me, God. He said, For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call thou not common. Now this happened three times and received up out of his midst. Now the Bible says that he doubted. And while he doubted, then here came the knock on the door. And they asked for him. Now he's to go to Cornelius' household and he's to preach the gospel to the very first Gentile that was not a Jewish, was not proselyted into the Jewish faith. Now, the reason why I called your attention to this is because God said something in this that is extremely important. He said, what I have cleansed, you never call it common or unclean. Now the word common appears there. In some nations, especially those related to the United Kingdom, the average man of the street is called a common. It was Peter then that wrote that the church is a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now basically what God is saying is that you being the vessel of the Lord, that when I come and touch you and I cleanse you and I take up my abode in your heart, that you, you never consider this to be common. It's not like any. And it's from that concept that the doctrine of separation is taught throughout the Scripture. Now, let me explain something here that you might understand a little bit better. You remember the wicked king Belshazzar that stood before the feast and he decided that he would drink wine from the golden vessels that came where? From the temple. Now, that was a dedicated temple. It was a holy temple. It had been dedicated by God. God's hand came down and touched that temple, and the Shekinah of God was so great that Solomon and the high priest could not even minister. Now, Belshazzar's feast probably would have been a lot different if he had not have come up with this crazy idea of taking one of those uncommon Vessels, those were sanctified vessels. Those were given to God. Now we're going to pour those full of wine and we're going to drink from them. It was when he put the cup to his mouth to drink from the uncommon vessel. He filled it with corruption and wine from the Gentiles. That the hand of God appeared on the wall and the message came, many, many, tekel euphorison. And his knees began to knock and shake. And that very night, that very night, the kingdom was divided and destroyed. He made one, one mistake. He desecrated that which was holy. Now, it's from that concept, see, that the doctrine of separation is taught throughout the Scripture. That what God has set aside and touched, 
that which God has sanctified, that which God has blessed, can never be used or desecrated without the wrath of God upon it. For that reason, then the children of disobedience, the children of disobedience in many cases receive greater condemnation than people who do not know. It was said of Judas, it would have been better that he had never been born than to have walked hand in hand with Jesus and did what he did. And so Paul then said, Know ye not that you are the vessel, the temple of the Holy Ghost? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for God loves a holy temple, which temple ye are. So this is the basic concept that's found in the Bible. God touched these four-footed beast and fowls of the air. Now, actually, what he's saying, it's all right to go ahead and eat them. But the greater message was that you are to go down to Gentiles that were not considered to be separate people. They were considered to be dogs by the Jews. But if God, if God would come and cleanse them like he did the Jews, he said, you must eternally lock your lips and accept him as your brother in Christ. Because he's not a common anymore now. He's not a dog anymore. He's not unclean. Now, what I'd like to do is go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And we want to talk about the concept of holiness and the concept of separation. So we go all the way back to the early chapters of the book of Genesis. And we want to read something to you. Now... When Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, the Bible tells us that they were placed there, they were to dress the garden, and they were to keep the garden. The Bible also tells us that that she was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And if you notice verse 25, the Bible says they were both naked, and the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now you notice... The man and his wife is mentioned there. Now, Eve was never called Eve until after she sinned. If you will look in Genesis, the third chapter, verse 20, after the curse was pronounced upon them, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, you may say that's pretty poor evidence of that. Well, if you will turn with me to the fifth chapter... And look at verse 1 and verse 2. The Bible says, This is the book of the generation of Adam in the day that God created man, and the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam. In the day when they were created, the very day they were created, here's a man and his wife and they're together. What's their name? Their name is Adam. And that was it. And she was never called Eve until the curse was pronounced upon her. In other words, her identity changed. Her name changed. Now, this is a type or a symbol of us who come back to the Lord. You will find when we come back to God, uh, uh, we take on God's name. And we become one with Christ. So we kind of lose our identity. It's swallowed up in the Lord. Now, 
For this reason, there's neither male nor female, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, for we're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to be teaching on the doctrine of the separation of sexes, and you may say, well, if we're all one in Christ, then why, Brother Grant, can't we just all dress alike, all look alike, and all act alike? Because the Word of God does not teach that at this point in time that we are 100% redeemed as we will be in the new city. And so the doctrine of the sexes and the separation of the sexes continues throughout the Bible. Now, you know very logically, from a logical standpoint, I know I've heard people say, oh, we're one in Christ. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't. Well, how can we have a men's room and a ladies' room? And one of the strongest doctrines that's taught in the Bible is the doctrine of the separation of the sexes. It has its foundation in Genesis, the third chapter. And we want to read this to you. And unto the woman who first ate of the fruit, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. So this established rule it was, was God's idea. It was not man's idea. It was God's idea. It wasn't that man was the stronger of the two, so he rose up and took dominion. That was not the way it was. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of the wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shall thou eat bread, till thou return to the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Now, looking at this, it's, it's, it's very, very simple what God is saying. That, that the, woman's, the woman's position is that she is to accept her husband as, as her head. And that... Uh, it speaks of bearing children. And uh, then, of course, Adam. Adam was to be the breadwinner. He was to be the, the, the man, the, the stronger of the two. Now, please keep in mind, uh, I'm, I'm taking this from the book of Genesis, not the book of Fourth John. Okay? Now, this was God's idea. Now, you may say, oh, but Brother Grant, this is not taught at all in the New Testament. Oh, yes, it is. 1 Corinthians 11, 3, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty four, Ephesians 5, 22, Colossians 3, 18, 1 Timothy 2, 11, Titus 2, 5, and 1 Peter 3, verse 1, 5, and 6. Now, those are New Testament scriptures. So please keep in mind now, when we get into the Bible, we talk about the doctrine of separation of the Old Testament that all of the doctrine of separation that's mentioned in the Old Testament is not applicable to New Testament living. But the part concerning the separation of the sexes is, for it is continued in its teaching in the New Testament. Now, we look at the, we look at the Ten Commandments. We look at the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day teaching is not a teaching of the New Testament, for that was a type and a shadow, and it was fulfilled in the Holy Ghost when Peter said, this is the rest 
And this is the refreshing. He's saying this is the Sabbath. This is what's spoken of. So the New Testament Christians understood in the Old Testament that the Sabbath was a type and a shadow of the Holy Ghost or the rest that we receive in the Lord. And many things in the Old Testament were types and shadows, but many things were not. For they were given for the benefit of the human race for that hour and was meant to be adhered to very, very strongly and strictly. Now, you will notice then that what happened, their eyes were opened and they knew the difference between good and evil. They looked at themselves and saw that they were naked. The Bible tells us that they made skins, or they made uh, uh, aprons, rather, of leaves and sewed them together. But when God came and visited them, the Bible tells us, now Genesis 3, 7 is where they made aprons, and, and, and uh, they, they hid themselves. But, but when the Lord took them out of the garden, the expulsion from the garden, the Bible says, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins, and he clothed them. Now God himself came down because of the sin of the garden and because of the separation of the sexes and each having its own identity. He would not accept the aprons. They could not go naked anymore. But they were to dress a particular way and he himself taught them how. You may say, well, I thought this was a type of the robe of righteousness that we wear. I believe that is true. But on the other hand, he actually did that, and that is doctrine that's taught throughout the Scripture. Now, let's talk somewhat about this doctrine of separation before we go any further. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, the 7th chapter, verse 1 through 11, you will find that God talks to Israel about their particular calling. And when the Lord God shall bring thee unto the land wherest thou goest to possess it, and hast cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Gergesites and the Amorites and the Canaanites, the Parasites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, ye shall smite them and utterly destroy them, for thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shall thou make any marriages with them. Thy daughter, uh, thy daughter, thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. We'll just stop here a minute and talk about this. You remember the doctrine of Balaam that's found in, you know, the Bible mentions Balaam and the doctrine of Balaam. You know, there are some things that irritate God to the point that he can't get it off of his mind. Now, I know that God forgets. But on the other hand, there are certain things that he calls our attention to, especially in the area where sin was committed and nobody repented of it. There was, there was no remorse. What do you think that Balaam actually did? He went to the Gentile king. God did not want him to go and pronounce a curse upon the children of Israel. He could not do that. They were wandering here in this wilderness. But he goes to the Gentile king, and this is what he said. He said, now, why don't you just take the children of Israel, the daughters of the children of Israel, and take the men, and why don't you just bring your daughters and your men by and kind of sport them, and uh, 
what will happen is that they'll intermarry, and if they intermarry, then this will break down the doctrine of Jehovah and their strong, their strong stand of separation. And that's exactly what happened for this reason then. You will find throughout the Bible that Balaam's name is constantly mentioned. The Bible even mentions in the book of Revelation to the letter of Sardis. Uh, uh, pardon me. Let's, let's look there. I don't want to get this wrong. I believe it's Pergamos. But let's look at uh, in the book of Revelation, the second chapter. And... Uh, Let's look at uh, at uh, a Pergamus. Uh, and to the angel of the church at Pergamus write, These things saith he which hath the sh- sharp sword with two edge edges. Now you look down at verse 14. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Now, it might interest you to know that the word Pergamus literally means married. That's what it means. And so this church was practicing, true to their name, a doctrine of the Old Testament. Simply means that they married the world. I can say this as a pastor, and Brother Godair, I think that you would, you would say amen to this. There is one thing that I would not want to do as a preacher. I would not want to stand before God on the judgment day knowing what I know about the Scripture concerning worldliness and the doctrine of separation and present to Christ a worldly church. That's one thing that I would not want to do. God never got it out of His cross, so to speak. This business of Balaam, he just he just couldn't couldn't get it he couldn't get it out of him. And the reason why is because you know you, you don't have to think very long to know that the Jews, even though they were scattered abroad throughout the earth, which they have been, that that can, after two thousand years they can still go back to Israel and unite themselves and believe the same doctrine because it was so embedded in them, my friend. That was not some type of dogmatism that those priests thought up. That happened to be a doctrine that came out of God Himself. Thou shalt make no marriages, verse 4, for they will turn away thy sons from following me, and they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. God says, I will be kindled against you and I will destroy. But thus shall you deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut up down their groves and burn their graven images with fire. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. And could I just interject something here that would just might, it might help you a lot? I think if a lot of you would just get your mind off what the world's thinking about you, and, and, and get a little bit of this Jewish philosophy in you, if you want to call it that, that came out of God, you'd be a, a lot better off and solve a lot of problems. <clears throat> the Lord did not set His love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. 
for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn to your fathers, Abraham, the call came to him to go out and separate himself from his, from his household. Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3. So the Jewish nation started with separation. Hath the Lord brought you out with the mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of the bondman and from the hand of, the, of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So you can see that, that this doctrine of separation was a doctrine that, that was, was really taught in, in the, in the uh, Old Testament. Now, you will also find that uh, when, when we begin to look in the, the, the New Testament, you'll find certain things that uh, are, are just extremely important to God, and that's the, the doctrine of the separation of sexes. Now, I don't want to jump ahead of myself, but let's turn to First Peter 3, and let's take a look at this. Now, here's a doctrine that's being taught. It's a general epistle. The general epistle simply means they were written to all Christians everywhere, not just a specific group. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. That Now, this came from where? This, this actually had its roots back in Genesis 3, where the original sin was committed. And you will find in every case in the New Testament in which holiness or, or, or modesty or standards relative to dress are mentioned, the chain of command is always mentioned. All right? If any obey not the word, they... Also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation. Now, the word conversation here actually means behavior. They behold your chaste behavior coupled with fear. Now, who's adorning? Let it not be the outward uh, adorning of the plaiting of the hair, the wearing of golds, or the putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart. In other words, your role is to be submissive to your husband, so let's play that role well if we are to win this unsaved husband. That's what he's saying. But let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit. In other words, what the New Testament is teaching here, it's also taught in the Old Testament, when the Bible says that he shall rule over thee, that the woman's role is to be submissive, that she is to be soft and she is to be feminine. That she is not to be brash and bold and decisive. That's the man's role. All right? Now, after, now, notice what he says now. He said, now, which is in the sight of God a great price? Now, when you see statements like this, it simply means when it, in the sight of God it's of great price. It means God places special emphasis and value. On this type of living. All right? Now notice what he says. After this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God. Now those who trusted in Now please understand, ladies, that there is a reason for this. And I know that, that I would be the most unpopular speaker in the state of Wisconsin right now if everybody in Wisconsin knew I was talking about this. But the secret that's found in the Bible is this, that Eve first sinned, and even though I believe that they both took upon themselves corrupt nature, the woman, for some reason, has to be more careful than the man. Now, you may disagree with that, 
I'm pastor long enough, and listen to me, pastors, very carefully, but I want the ladies to listen even closer. 99.9% of all church problems are created by women. Now, you're not going to say amen to that, are you? Ladies, for some reason, if you get a group of ladies together and the pastor's wife's not there, they'll have a fight. I'm serious with you. Or they'll start some kind of gossip or something will... Now, you may say, now, Brother Grant, I'm going to turn you off. That's all right. You see, when I teach like this, I don't really care where anybody says amen or not. I am 100% sure that what I'm teaching is 100% right. And I don't know any other way to put it. Now, I do not feel, however, that any man or any preacher hearing my statement and knowing what the Bible says should go and purposely accuse someone of anything that they're not guilty of or become prejudiced in your mind against ladies or anybody. Because I personally think that the Bible teaches us concerning the weaker vessel that we should give honor to them. And and I can truthfully say that I think the reason why that my wife and I have had such a beautiful relationship down through the years is simply because that I have honored her. I've honored her privately and I've honored her publicly. And when Paul speaks of a wife, a wife is an extension of a man's flesh. That's what he said. And no man ever yet hated his own flesh. And if a man is a dictator and a ruler and abuser of his wife, he is a dumb and ignorant man. And it might also surprise you if you really knew, if you took an IQ test, your wife may be smarter than you. And could I say in most cases women do fare a little bit better than men do because they read a lot more. And they observe a lot more. And they're more curious than men. Now that can be a problem too. You follow what I'm saying? Now, I I, I want to put this in because I think it's very important because as we go through this, you're going to say, what about the men? Well, I think there's certain areas of common sense that maybe not even mentioned in the the Scripture. And I, I just want to throw out something. You know, Personally, I see a lot of boys that are alarming me because they're coming around with these punk rock haircuts and everything. Now, when we were trying to get these boys to cut their hair and keep it short, they wouldn't do it. But when the world come along with a punk rock thing that's in style, now they're going to do it. And while we were trying to tell them not to wear their pants so tight and everything, they would, they would, we had boys that wore their pants so tight you could see their nerves. But now because baggy pants are in, everybody wants to wear them. And I say that if you if you want to look godly and dress godly and act godly, so because that's the style of the land, my friend, you miss the mark altogether too. Praise God. More about that later on. Now, you will let's just stop because I I kind of stirred up the hornet's nest here. <laughs> Ladies, I really love you. Do you believe that? I really do. How many of you really believe Brother Grant loves you? Praise God. All right. I really do. 
Now, I'm going to jump on the side of the ladies just for a moment. This is going to surprise you because, see, this doctrine is taught in the New Testament. And when you, when you, when you looked at the way the Jews interpret the doctrine, quite often they, they really did miss the mark. And the big problem in the New Testament church is that the ladies were quite often suppressed to the point in which the men would not recognize them and they could not be used anyway in the house of the Lord. Now, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 14. Now, 1 Corinthians 14 deals with spiritual gifts. There's prophecy, there's tongues, there's interpretation. Now, the Apostle Paul put some regulations on this, and uh, uh, he talks about how that tongues should be handled and how that uh, uh, interpretation should be handled and how that prophecy should be handled. And then he gets to a little point, and he inserts something. And I think the reason why this is important, because... He goes back to the same subject at the end when he says, Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. So he goes back to the spiritual gifts after he seems to take a subject that most people consider to be totally out of context. <clears throat> now, I do not believe that this is out of context at all. This is what he says. He said, For God is not the author of confusion, verse 33, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Now, he said, you got another confusing situation here. It's not just who speaks in tongues and how many times. It's not just who interprets and how many times. It's not just who prophesies and how many times. But the big question now is, what about the ladies? There's a question here, see. Now, before you uh, get all... <clears throat> Before you get your brain in gear, keep it in neutral until I go through this. All right? Let your women keep silent in the churches, for it is not permitted them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Now, I would say that if 99% of our preachers believe that to be a valid statement within itself, just as it is, and you take it just as it appears, that 99% of us... If we believed it would be in violation of the word of the Lord, because most of us have ladies who do speak in churches. They give testimonies, they sing, they teach. Uh, uh, I was taught when I was a child, well, this is talking about business meetings. It doesn't say anything about business meetings. It's a stretch of the imagination to think he's talking about business meetings. Not talking about business meetings. He's talking about a move of the Lord in the church. He's talking about prophecy, tongues, and interpretation. But he does make that statement, as he said, and he, he, he's, he finishes the statement, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church. Now, the clincher to the interpretation of this is found in verse 36. What? Question mark. In other words, he quotes what he says the law says, and he turns around and says, what? Question mark. In other words, they were teaching this to come out of the law, and he says, what? Now notice what he says. Came the word of God, not out of the law, but where? What does it say there? Out from you. Words, that's not the teaching of the law. That was not the teaching of the law. The law never prohibited anybody from being used of God. 
Do you think I could go to the Old Testament and find prophetesses? Do you think I could? you think I could go to the Old Testament and find women who were genuinely used of God? So, you see, they were passing this down. They were saying, okay, now, no ladies say anything. The men are in control. Remember, remember it was Eve that sinned. So we don't want anybody here that is a lady to say one word. That's what they were teaching. But see, God would move upon some of those ladies, and they, would be, they were responding in the Spirit, and the men said, shh, remember the law. He said, what came the Word of God out from you? Or came it unto you only. You may say that's pretty weak evidence. Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 11 when he talks about the hair. The first thing he does, he said, Be, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you keep, that, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them unto you. Of course, you're well aware that the Jews had the Torah, which was the law. They had the Talmud. They had the Midrash. They had quite a few books, see. The Talmud was the interpretation of the rabbis over a span of about 500 years. The Pharisees were following that, and that's the reason why that they taught some things out of context of the law and even accused Jesus of blaspheming. So Paul says, now we've got to set this record straight. So, now I'm not going to get off base, he says, but let's forget about all these books. Let's stay with the Word. Now you keep the ordinances I delivered unto you. But I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. In other words, what he's saying is that if a woman prays or prophesies, she dishonors her head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, even though she dishonors her head, I lost my place in... All right, verse 5. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is even all one, as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if, she be, but if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman is of God. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither is the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, by all things of God. Judge in yourself, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? And does not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, is a shame unto him. But if a woman have long hair, is a glory unto her, for her hair is given her for a covering. Now, we're going to stop there. We will deal with verse 16. But basically what he's saying is, now, we all know the chain of command, he said. Now, you've been teaching some things that are not right. You said it came out of the law. Now, there are many things in the law very similar to this, but there's nothing in the law like this. The clincher is, go try to find that in the law. You won't find it there. So basically what he's saying over here when he says, What? Came the word of God out from you or came it unto you? 
Only, notice then what he says in verse 37. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. That's exactly what he was saying in 1 Corinthians 11. Basically what he's saying from 11 all the way through. See, before he gives us spiritual gifts in, in, in 12, and before he gives us regulations in 14, he first explains this, that if a woman wants to be used of God in the house of God, he says, now, we want you to remember certain things. Now, I'll put them in a different category, but remember the angels? Remember how they rebelled against God? You remember how he lost his estate? You remember the doctrine of separation of the sexes and everything? You remember how Adam was created first, and then the Eve, and the woman sinned, it wasn't the man? Now, he said, we have practice, and we've had this custom but you came out of God, that if a woman goes in the presence of God with her head covered, it's all right for her to pray and prophesy. But she should never deviate from that nature that God wants her to have. It is so easy for her to pervert her nature. See? And so... In this particular scripture, he is saying that, that, the, that the one thing concerning the lady that does indeed exemplify or tell off on her in every case is an attitude that she manifests toward leadership. Now... If she prays or prophesies with her head covered, what does she do? She honors her head. Now, I've never heard my wife give a message in tongues or an interpretation. I've never heard her prophesy. But I can truthfully say, as godly as my wife is while her hair is not real long, it just doesn't grow long. Since my wife and I have been married, she has never cut her hair since she's been to church. And if my wife as submissive and godly as she is, if she stands and prophesies, she honors me, not dishonors me. So what Paul was trying to say, now you men are thinking these ladies are not honoring you. That's not true. Because we've always had this custom, see, that they dress that way. And I would like to, I'd like for you to look at verse 16, and we'll read it from the Amplified Bible. Because this is the scripture that's misunderstood by a lot of especially Charismatics and Trinity Pentecostals. Now listen to the reading of the Amplified New Testament. Now if anyone is disposed to be argumentative and contentious about this, we hold to and recognize no other custom in worship than this, nor do any of the churches of God. In other words, that's, 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 the, that's the way we practice it. Now... <clears throat> I guess this would be a good time for me to throw in, just for good measure, a little bit about cutting hair. Uh, you were expecting some of this this morning. By the way, I am teaching this by request. I mentioned this to the ladies, and I got an overwhelming response from so many people, even cards written and letters written encouraging me to do this. Well, I'm not going to cover a lot of the do's and don'ts. I want you to understand the principle why it's taught in the Bible. Now, he mentions three lengths of hair here. He mentions shaven hair, he mentions shorn hair, and he mentions long hair. 
Now, for a woman to be shaved, that simply means that shaven hair is taking a sharp object and removing it all the way down to the skin. Now, you can search this in the Greek, and you'll find it bears witness of this. Shorn hair simply means you take scissors and you, you cut it. Now, if it's a shame for a woman to be shorn, that's move, remove it all, or cut it a little bit, see? And it is a shame, and you will find the word shame there does not just mean, mm, I'm sorry. It actually means sin. Okay, the two, the two lengths of hair that we've already mentioned and considered leads us then to one conclusion, that if, if shaving means to remove it with a sharp object, and shorn means to cut it a little, regardless of how, but to, to use scissors or some other instrument to remove it in part, long hair must mean uncut hair. It can't mean anything else but that. So some ladies' hair would grow real long and some not so long. The importance is not the length. But what you're doing with it, see? And I know that we have a lot of ladies that like to, you know, they, 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 they like to look mod, and I, I appreciate our ladies liking to look fresh and, and attractive. Uh, years ago, the ladies didn't give much thought to the hair, and I thought maybe they were the ugliest creatures. That's before I got in the church that God ever created. Couldn't figure out why anybody would want to just slap their hair up in some kind of a bun and look ugly. <clears throat> but that's the way the ladies did it back then. I will say this, however, in, in defense of the ladies who did it like this, they were not very concerned about the world, a whole lot less concerned than what some of you ladies are that really try to put on the show, you know. And could I also say this? While I appreciate the ladies trying to look attractive, you should try to look attractive for your husband. And we as Christian husbands don't care how Farrah Fawcett fixes her hair. And some of these other ladies of the world. I am, I am just appalled at, 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 at the, how some of our ladies try to emulate or copy some of these actresses, and these actresses slip in and out of the bed with everybody that comes along and cuts their hair, and they do all this and everything, and, and then our ladies come along and says, well, I saw this in the magazine. Doesn't this look nice? Who wants to try to imitate somebody like that? <clears throat> now, to me, that's the doctrine of Balaam first class, my friend. Praise God, praise God. And I, I think that the lady should keep the scissors off of her hair. Now, I know that I've, I've heard that pastors teach that it's all right for the ladies just cut it a little bit and cut it a little bit. I say that is not right. That is not taught in the Bible. You could trim your hair a little bit every week until you got it the length you wanted it. And there's always somebody that wants to go around the Word of God and circumvent it to be just like the world and yet be holy, friend. You cannot do that. For your vessel has been consecrated. Don't desecrate it. And the only way that you could desecrate it is being in violation of what God said. Because sin is the opposite of what He says. Praise God. All right, now, where are we? Let's take a look at this a little bit closer. 
All right, let's talk about modest apparel then. How about it? We'll, boy, my time's getting away. I really need four days to teach something like this. So we gotta, we gotta get this thing in high gear and, 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 and shovel along here. All right. And first, first Timothy 2, if you notice what happens here, the very same thing takes place. First Timothy 2, verse 9, In like matter also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. And could I, could I just put this in, ladies? Really? Now, I know what ladies say. They say, oh, but men, God looks on the heart. Men looks on the outward appearance. That's, the, that's it. See, yeah, it, God does look on the heart, but men look on the legs and sometimes other parts. And inasmuch as I want my wife to dress holy so nobody else, I would not want my wife standing up addressing the church and representing me and representing God and look like a sex symbol. And I'm just going to throw this in, and I don't want anybody looking around, but ladies that wear T-shirts and got all kinds of words and everything on it, if you want to put some words on your T-shirt, put it on the back. Don't put it on the breast. Come on, don't be looking around. Because some people just don't, they don't think, see. And, and I think that this is what the Bible is saying when it says with shamefacedness and sobriety. Some ladies, all you see when you look at them is S-E-X. And we're going to get into this because there's a strong teaching in the Bible. But that which becometh woman professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence, and that means in quietness and all subjection. I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority over a man, but to be in silence or quietness. Now, this is talking about a husband relationship, husband-wife relationship. It is not talking about being used in the church. I believe that ladies can teach the children. They can, they can even teach young men some things. I do think that ladies have to be very careful, though, when they stand before a group of men and try to teach men. Because, you know, men should be strong and decisive. When I stand up here, you know, I pound my fist and I do everything else. A lady who's got a fist-pounding habit usually perverts her nature. For Adam was first formed and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if she continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Isn't that something? Now, let me just uh, go back to the Old Testament just for a moment, and we're going we're gonna to look at something else. And I, I got into this business about sex a little bit. I know we don't talk a lot about it in relationship to holding the standards, but I think in this particular case we, we ought to go back. Let's go back to the book of, of uh, Isaiah, if you would. The book of Isaiah. And let's look at uh, chapter 14. Now, do you still love me? Yes. Praise God. This is the way I teach it at Calvary Gospel Church. We have four lessons. We teach all new new Christians. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Now, this is talking about Babylon. Now, let me tell you something about Babylon. And it wasn't only true of Babylon. It was true of every nation that took the children of Israel into captivity. It happened in Egypt. It happened in Babylon. The first thing the Babylonians did when they captured the children of Israel and brought them in, they changed their name. They changed their garments. 
They want him to eat the king's meat, and they want him to bow down to the music. They felt, now that was the devil's plan. If we can get, if we can change their name, make them eat the king's meat, change their garments, and make them bow down to our music or worship our music, we can eliminate them. That's the reason why music is such a devilish thing. You don't understand what you're fooling with when you fool with music. I'm serious with you. You know, and I, I'll go just one little step further than, than Brother Godair did, and it's not to cast any stones to Brother Godair. I believe 100% what he's saying. But, but for, you know, this rock music just has to be so loud, and you never even know what people are saying. I never did like anybody scream in my ear like that. Music was meant to bring the best out of man. And if the culture of a nation is defined by three things, listen, their art, their music, and their dress. And if this abstract art, rock music, and nudity among Americans defines our culture, my friend, we don't have much on our brains. All right, here's Babylon now. Remember what Babylon did to the children of Israel. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin, daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. We won't call you tender and delicate anymore. Take the millstones and grind meal. Uncover thy locks. In other words, boy, I tell you, I feel something from God. This business of ladies pulling off their bras and crawling up telephone poles and doing a man's work is the most ungodly thing I ever heard of. Really, we went through this movement when all the ladies wanted to pull off their bras and go out and look like men. E-R-A, E-R-A, I say B-R-A. All right, now this is what's happening. Listen to this. Take the millstones, grind the mill, uncover the locks, make bare thy leg, uncover thy thigh, pass over the rivers. That means pass beyond your boundaries. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance. Now notice what God says. But when I judge you, I won't judge you as a man. Just because you crossed over the boundaries and acted like a man, I won't judge you like a man. Isaiah 47. What did I say? Did I say 48? I'm sorry. 14 I said. Isaiah 47. All right. Give you time to go back there. Now, while you're going back there in Isaiah 47, we're going to talk to you just a little bit. Did you know in every case in the Bible when people backslid and they walked away from God that this business of fornication and sex and lasciviousness and all this became a big problem? In this post-World War II era, it is not by accident that when ladies started wearing pants, when ladies started cutting their hair, when they started wearing makeup, that at the same time the ERA movement rose up, family life was destroyed, and homosexuality became prominent. Read Romans 2. 
Just read Romans 2 where their, their affections were turned. You may say, yeah, but this little girl, she's, she's just interested in, in, in just being a sex symbol. She's real sexy. And what's that got to do? Well, the thing about it is, my friend, that when sex gets out of hand, it always leads to perversion. Always. Okay, I told you the wrong scripture. Let's look at it again. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Uncover thy locks. Make bare thy leg. Uncover thy thigh. Pass over the rivers. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered. Yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance. I will not meet thee as a man. In other words, you're going to march out and act like a man, but whenever I take vengeance and judge you, I'm going to judge you by the same standard that all women of the world are going to be judged by. And I might just add this, because my time is really over right now, and I'm, I've got a lot of material to cover. But did you know that, you know, you know what? The Bible says that when all of this happened to they, the, the ladies began to pull off their, their, their clothes, it started by the uncovering of the leg. This is the reason why that I really think, if you want to know the truth, uh, we got a whole lot of ladies wearing these slits in their skirts and everything, and even some on camp, and you're running around here with your, your legs hanging out, and you think that you're Miss Hot So-and-So, this is not the place for it, my friend. If you want to wipe your feet on something, don't wipe it on the church. Get out in the world someplace if you want to be like that. I'm serious with you. Anytime, you know, you're not, you're not impressing anybody here, but maybe just a few select ones that you brought. But, but it is a, it is a, it's ignorance personified to think that a preacher like me would stand up here and preach like this and you know it and you go ahead and do it and act that way. Now, if I didn't even know God, I'd at least respect the people who put all the money into the facility and everything to act decent when I come to camp. <clears throat> Isn't this something? Do you agree with me? <clears throat> we haven't even covered Deuteronomy 22, the law of separation. I haven't even talked about Jezebel. Deuteronomy 22, it's abomination for a woman to put on a man's garment. Or for a man to put on a woman's garment. Now, I know that people say, yeah, but look at other things in there. You couldn't even take two kinds of seeds and sow them. But, my friend, that's not a teaching of the New Testament. But the teaching of the separation of sexes is a New Testament doctrine. And I know that some of you say, oh, but Brother Grant, back then they wore robes and so forth. I know all that. I've been down that trail in my mind many, many times. But I will say this. If I use that line of logic, if I were you, and I really thought the Bible taught the doctrine of the separation of the sexes, if I were you, I'd go put a robe on then. But what the Bible is really teaching, it's teaching us that men should wear apparel that makes them godly, that does not pervert their nature, in which they can be decisive and strong, and women should wear garments in which they... They can be feminine and not on display before society. 
I'm serious with you. I I don't mean to be crude or rude. But you take a lady that would put on britches without a thought. They just prop their legs up like this. Instead of squatting down to pick up something, they just bend over. You follow what I'm saying? I don't have enough time to teach all of this. But let me tell you something, okay, in closing here. Now, we, we never talked about pain on the face or anything. Surprisingly, there, there is a lot in the Bible about that. Just keep playing, Sister Jane. Okay. i I, I got to go just five more minutes, okay? <clears throat> oh, hallelujah. Okay, the salad bar will be waiting, they say. Jeremiah 3, verse 8, when I saw, and I saw, when for all causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. Now this is what always happens, see. Now here's Israel. Israel was what? In the Old Testament. The word writing and divorcement was given because she was considered to be the wife of God. And then you will find, here's, here's what happened in Jeremiah 4, verse 30. This is not the only place this is found in the Scripture. There's a lot in the Scripture about this. And when thou art spoiled, what wilt thou do? Question mark. In other words, when you're backslidden, what are you, what are you going to do? Though thou clothest thyself with crimson... Though thou deckest thyself with ointments of gold. Though thou rentest thy face with paintings, in vain shall thou make thyself fair. Thy lovers will despise thee, and they will seek thy life. Now, inasmuch as Israel was the wife of God in the Old Testament, God gave her writing a divorcement and sent her away. I personally believe because of her adultery, God took a Gentile bride for the end time. Now, I don't want you to think about that too much because you maybe can get confused. And the New Testament woman is a type of the bride of Christ today. Now, wasn't that what Paul said in Ephesians 6? He said, I show you a mystery. I speak concerning the husband and the wife, but really I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, if the New Testament church is the true bride of Christ, what about the false bride that's found in the book of Revelation? In the book of Revelation, if you turn with me to Revelation 2, Now, it's not until Revelation 17 that the false bride is revealed. Now, I've got a little different idea about, about this business concerning the time of Jacob's trouble. But Jacob had two wives. He worked seven years for one and seven years for another. It was at the end of seven years that the true bride turned out to be the wrong woman. 
Now, of the seven churches of Israel, there's one church, the church of Thyatira. And of the angel of the church, Revelation 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, his feet like unto fine brass. I know thy works and thy charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works. Thou hast, and the last, to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed unto idols. I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Now notice verse 22. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Now, while I do believe that these churches represent specific church ages, I also believe that there are some of these that are still in existence today. Thyatira, for one. Thyatira is the church that's going into tribulation. Now, if you will look in Revelation 17, she's not called Jezebel there, but let's take a look at her. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials. And he talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show thee the kingdom of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth, earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names and blasphemings, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with golds and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was the name written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth. Now, here she is in tribulation. She's not called Jezebel there, but she certainly fits that same description that you saw. Jezebel that was in the Old Testament, where we find her in 1 Kings 19, 18, 19, and then, of course, 2 Kings 9. The Bible says that she was a wicked queen. She was a patroness of idolatry. She was a prophetess. She was revengeful. She was a murderess. She was vain in the way she dressed and painted her face. She met her terrible death with the dogs eating her flesh. And you will find that this is very similar to the false church in the book of Revelation. She's called Jezebel. And, and I know that this, this is just an old, old cliche when we say you paint up like a Jezebel. But isn't it strange that even the world knows what that means? They had a contest in, Ma- in, in Madison. I, I, I'm a little hesitant to use something like this, but it actually happened. They had a contest in Madison, and they had a Tammy Faye look-alike contest. And you know what they advertised over the radio? They said, just trowel it on and come on down Jezebel's. Now, that's what they said. But you see, the church 
The New Testament Christian lady is a type of the true, unadulterated, separated, God-fearing, apostolic bride. Praise God. And if you read about her in the book of Revelation, my friend, she is the church that's robed with the glory and the Shekinah of God and the white garments of the Lord. We're going to have to stand. Praise God. Oh, let's lift our hands and worship the Lord, would you? I love you, God. 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 I love you.